Welcome to the Department of Continuing Education. I can see quite a lot of familiar faces, but also an awful lot of people I don't know. Um, so welcome. I'm Marianne Talbot. I'm Director of Studies in Philosophy at the Department of Continuing Education here. Um, and we're responsible for all Oxford's outreach, uh, all the lifelong learning, if you like. Uh, and we run weekly classes, weekend schools, online courses and summer schools. Uh, for none of which do you need any qualifications. So uh, if you've always wanted to come to Oxford, now is your chance. We, we provide you a way of doing that, um, whatever your qualifications. Uh, and you'll find at the back um, our prospectus <coughs> and also a leaflet that tells you everything that's going on in philosophy, um, plus some leaflets that tell you about weekend schools, for example... Um, thinking about the impossible in April next year, truth and relativism uh, later this month, and so on. So there are lots of things for you to get your teeth into, um, and I hope that having found where we are, you'll come along. Uh, I look forward to seeing you. Um, the way we're going to run this today um, is uh, I'm going to start by briefly introducing our speakers uh, and then each of them is going to speak for about five minutes talking about their own research. Then we're going to um, have a discussion between the three of them. Um, so they have discussed this, they know what they're going to talk about, or at least they tell me they do, so we'll wait and see. Um, while they're talking, um, Gail, who I think is standing around here, is she? Yes, she is, um, has got some cards uh, if you would like to ask a question, um, if you could ask, just put your hand up and Gail will bring you a card and when you wave the card afterwards she'll come and collect it and then I'll read out the question um, and the panel will ask, answer it. The reason we're doing it that way because we will open it to the floor afterwards um, but at that point we must turn off the recording equipment because we haven't got your permission to record you. Uh, and so we're not allowed to record the question and answer sessions. So if you have a question that you don't mind being attached to name-wise, uh, so you don't mind my reading it out for you, then that's the way to do it. Put up your hand, Gail will give you a card, and I'll read out your question for you. Otherwise, we'll open it to the floor later on. Okay, well, today, as you know, is the 98th anniversary to the day um, when the gun, guns fell silent, as they put it, after a war that killed 8.5 million people. Um, it was called the war to end all wars, um, but since then we've had a second world war in which 38 million died. Um, there are questions about the numbers, of course. And there have been numerous other wars and conflicts War is changing in all sorts of ways, and tonight we're going to be talking about the future of warfare, and we're going to be talking in particular about the ethics of warfare. And we have three specialists here to help us. Um, firstly, we have Helen Frau. Frau. I, I should have asked you about it. Okay, Helen Frau, who's the um, Professor of Practical Philosophy at the University of Stockholm. And she's also director of the Stockholm Centre for Ethics of um, for the Ethics of War and Peace, and she's also um, the author of several books. But this is her latest, uh, Defensive Killing. And afterwards, uh, Katie from OUP will be selling these books and others uh, in the common room or just outside. That's Helen. Um, then we have. Um, 
Alex Leveringhouse, who's the Leverhulme Fellow of um, Politics at Manchester University, and he specialises in um, ethics and autonomous weapons, and indeed he has a book on the subject, but he hasn't brought a copy of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Wave it marketing. at you. <laughs> it is, it's published by Palgrave, and it's an e-book, so if you Google Alex Leveringhouse, and you can find his name on all the leaflets around here, um, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Uh, and finally, we have James Patterson, who's Professor of Politics again at the University of Manchester, so they work together. Um, he specialises in the ethical issues surrounding conflict, and he has two books here tonight, um, so Humanitarian Intervention and the Responsibility <coughs> to Protect, and The Morality of Private War, which I think is the latest one, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay, so you'll be talking, I think... Yeah, I was going to speak more about that because it's more on the themes. Of I'll, the... In that oh, case, okay, I'll great, hand it you. back to you and you can wave it around okay, yourself right, okay. later. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so without further ado, would you like to start, Helen? Oh, thank you. Um, so thank you very much for coming. Um, so... Uh, as Marianne said, my research has really been um, very much on moral and political philosophy and particularly on the ethics of, of war. Um, and a lot of my work has looked at what we might call the different theoretical approaches to how we can think about the ethics of war. So traditionally, uh, a lot of you are probably familiar with the idea of kind of uh, the idea of jus ad bellum and jus in bello. Um, it's a very kind of state-based approach to the ethics of war. So um, it's state-based in terms of uh, what we think of as a war. So traditionally, a war has been understood as a conflict, a relationship between states. Um, it's state-based in terms of the kind of causes that we think of as being just causes for war. So things like defense of sovereignty, obviously very much kind of tied in with statehood. Notions of legitimate authority, um, so the kind of entities that are allowed to wage war uh, or that have the capacity to wage war. So all of these are very kind of um, collective notions, very state-based notions, and that's really been the dominant view of how we should think about the ethics of war um, <laughs> for a good period of history. And this view is state-based not only with respect to these kind of um, ad bellum or kind of going to war questions, but also with respect to how we think about what people can do within war. So um, one of the main tenets of this approach uh, is that, for example, there's a, a really significant distinction between being a combatant and being a non-combatant or a civilian. Um, there's an idea that uh, it really matters if soldiers are people who are fighting on the orders of their state. Um, so if we think about the killings that soldiers carry out, normally we think that even if soldiers are fighting in an unjust war, the fact that they're the armed forces of a state and that they're following the orders of their leaders uh, means that, for example, they shouldn't be prosecuted for these killings. Uh, some people might think that the killings that they carry out are not wrongful, at least not in the way that killings ordinarily are if we go around killing people unjustly. Um, and the flip side of this idea that um, combatants are somehow immune from prosecution and not engaged in wrongdoing, even if they're fighting in <coughs> unjust wars, has always been that they're nonetheless they're entitled to kill each other, um, that soldiers can aim at other combatants. Um, but the other side of that is that they shouldn't aim their force at civilians. So civilians um, can be collaterally harmed in war, so you can harm those as a side effect of trying to pursue a military goal, um, but you shouldn't direct your force at civilians. So this is the principle of non-combatant immunity, which has been a sort of stalwart of, of, of just war theory. And so a lot of the work that I do um, 
is part of a revisionist trend of a theoretical approach to war which gets rid of this idea of war as a relationship between states and thinks much more about the rights and duties of individuals. Um, and so rather than thinking um, that wars are sort of um, a spe special moral sphere with its own unique rules, um, this kind of revisionist view tends to think that um, essentially nothing morally magic happens when we enter a state of war. We're still just individuals. We have our ordinary rights and our ordinary duties. These include duties not to kill people unjustly. And nothing magic happens if I'm ordered by my leader, my political leader, to go and kill some people who I shouldn't be killing. Um, so one of the upshots of this revisionist view of thinking about um, individual rights in war is that it becomes very hard to hold on to, for example, this traditional view that um, when combatants on on a war, say you have a war which is say just on one side and unjust on the other side, um, the idea that there's some kind of moral equality between the combatants on both sides of this war starts to look kind of dubious because effectively what you have is one bunch of people say engaged in an aggressive, un unjust aggressive assault and then you have some people engaged in what looks like legitimate defence. And the thought is that there isn't moral equality between these groups. So that's one of the upshots of this kind of um, different way of thinking about the ethics of war. And it also it challenges the principle of non-combatant immunity in various ways. And this is what a lot of uh, my work has been on. It's what one of the main claims of uh, the book is, um, is that it's hard to sustain on an individualist perspective um, the idea that civilians could never be legitimate targets in war from a moral perspective. So um, once we get away from the idea that there's a kind of um, something special about being ordered to kill on the orders of your state and we're really just thinking about the justice of the cause, whether or not you should be killing anybody. If we start to think a bit more generally about the kinds of things that can make people forfeit their rights against being harmed, it looks like in ordinary life, for example, we would think that people who are contributing to unjust threats. So if I give James a weapon so that he can go and carry out a drive-by shooting, it looks like I'd be liable to some kind of defensive force. That if you needed to defend yourself by harming me, now, that would be okay if I've conspired with James to try and carry out this unjust killing. And then if you take these kinds of thoughts and think about the moral principles that they generate, then it starts to look like it would be hard to sustain the idea that civilians who are part of a, um, a country fighting an unjust war and who are making, knowingly making contributions to their country's unjust war could nonetheless never be legitimate targets of force. Um, so this is just one way in which... Um, just war thinking has developed very much, especially over the last decade or so, um, to think very much about the implications of uh, individual responsibility for war, the um, responsibility of individual citizens for war, um, and how that should affect um, the different ways in which we think about the harming of, of combatants compared to the, the harming of civilians. Thank you. Alex. Yeah, and, and thanks very much uh, for turning out tonight. So I'm a philosopher um, to and I worked from 2012 to 2015 here in Oxford um, on a project that looked at emerging combat technologies. And it was a great opportunity because I was paired with an engineer and um, a person who was working in computer programming and especially in artificial intelligence. So these guys were looking at the technical side, what future developments might be uh, in weapons technology while I was sort of looking at the ethical and uh, legal uh, implications um, of that. Um, I guess there's sort of, a, a, for a philosopher looking at these technological issues, I guess there's sort of a general question, general philosophical question, and then a more specific issue. 
And I guess the general philosophical question really is whether weapons research, which of course will inevitably uh, shape warfare, can be morally justified. And it's actually quite surprising. Um, there has been a lot, I mean, Helen just mentioned it, there has been a lot of work on just war theory recently, a lot of work on the ethics of armed conflict. So philosophers, you know, leading philosophers have really given quite a bit of thought to the issues, but yet very few actually engage with the question of weapons research. And yet it seems to me, I mean, if you want to fight a war, and if you think probably that wars are sometimes justified, at least you need the means uh, to pursue those kinds of wars. But the development of those means is not uh, morally straightforward, and at least requires some, some moral justification. Now, uh, very simply, um, it requires moral justification because it seems to me that one of the distinctive aspects of a weapon is that it has been designed in order to harm someone. Okay? It's actually very difficult to specify how to, de um, how to define a weapon, uh, partly because uh, nearly anything could be turned into a weapon. If you go onto YouTube, um, there's a great uh, clip from a Rolling Stones concert, I think sort of from the 70s or 80s um, on there. And so this is Keith Richards in his sort of rock and roll prime. And um, sort of one of the audience members jumps onto the stage and Keith Richards takes off his guitars and takes it by the neck and sort of swings it like a baseball bat. Now, of course, I mean, he's weaponized the guitar, but very, very few people, uh, very, very few people would say that this is a weapon, right? Anything could be weaponized, but very, very few artifacts are actually weapons. Um, the video is called, I believe, Don't Mess with Keith Richards. So you might want to, you might want to look this up um, later on. So, I mean, the moral problem arises in a way because weapons are designed to inflict harm. And that, of course, opens another can of worms that I won't go into. I mean, the whole question, what is harm? What constitutes um, harm? And that's not an easy question, as anyone who's done legal philosophy and moral philosophy um, will know. Now, of course, um, many philosophers assume uh, that, the, uh, that negative duties not to harm others are very, very stringent duties. These are amongst the most stringent duties that we have. So duties not to kill, not to assault other people, and so on and so forth. So given that weapons inflict harm, they require um, a justification. And of course, if, I mean, given what I've just said, I mean, if you consider that these negative duties are very, very stringent indeed, it seems sort of uh, the, the, the issue of weapons research um, sort of appears a bit yucky, right? I mean, you're designing something that is designed in a way to harm. On the other hand, and of course, one could make such an argument against weapons research. Look, we shouldn't really harm people. You know, weapons are designed to harm, therefore we shouldn't develop them. It's a very simplistic argument. On the other hand, of course, and, and this is, I think, very interesting when we think about the future of armed conflict, you could also make arguments for weapons research, or you could make arguments uh, for weapons in general. Now, of course, it seems to me you need to distinguish here between uh, sort of moral arguments in favor of uh, weapons research and non-moral arguments. So, for example, you will get a lot of strategic arguments. If you look at international relations and so on, look, um, the Chinese got it, you know, we want these weapons too, we need to catch up somehow. But as a moral argument in favor of weapons research, and I find this quite intriguing, and probably we can take this up in the discussion later on, I guess the only argument I can really imagine, and the only two arguments I can really imagine uh, for weapons research are on the one hand that the development of weapons enables us to fulfill humanitarian duties, and especially to fulfill humanitarian duties to minimize harm. This would be sort of an idea, I guess, that if you've read some international relations, would be 
around since the late 1990s, early 2000s. People like Christopher Coker have written on it at the LSE of humane warfare. Warfare becomes ever more restricted. We got ever better technologies and the kind of nature of war changes as a result. And as a result, it becomes more humane. So weapons play an important, an important part in that. Um, the other argument one could make is that, of course, uh, weapons technology or certain weapon technologies do not just uh, enhance, in a way, compliance with humanitarian <laughs> duties, but rather they enable us to fulfill special obligations, i.e. obligations that we might have to the soldiers of a particular state, the soldiers of a particular, particular army. And, of course, one of the interesting issues will be, or one of the interesting questions is, um, how these two sets of obligations, these humanitarian duties on the one hand and the special duties one might have to soldiers of one state, how they will relate to each other. And I guess, I mean, the, the best example, and I just, I just finished on that, the best example which encapsulates this is, I guess, drone technology, which I've done a lot of uh, work on. So currently, a lot of drones are teleoperated. They are remote controlled. They have a very complex sensor suite uh, through which they can record images uh, from their zone of deployment. Uh, they're usually um, uh, connected via a satellite link to an operator who can then view the images, but who does not have to be in the vicinity. And of course, a lot of people um, are saying, you know, this is a great development. I mean, not only do these drones allow us to be more precise when it comes to uh, launching attacks on a particular target and therefore enable us uh, to um, enable us to fulfill our humanitarian duties. No, they also, so they kill two birds with one stone, as it were, they also enable us in, uh, to fulfill our special obligations towards members of the armed forces, namely to shield them uh, from unnecessary harm. So some people might say this is really sort of an ethical win-win situation. And if such an ethical win-win situation um, defines the future of armed conflict, uh, so much the better. I must say I'm personally more skeptical about this and whether these new weapons technologies will reinforce this idea of humane warfare. I think that's something we can take up in the discussion. I think that's really one of the critical issues of our, of our age. Thank you. James. Okay, great. I was going to pass... Uh, pass my books around. I didn't expect quite a, such a big audience, so I only bought one <laughs> copy of each. So they'll probably only get past the first fast row, but uh, feel free to browse through them while I'm speaking, of course. And as I said, the, bo the books are on sale afterwards as well. Yeah, thank you. So um, I've been involved in three main projects. Um, the first one has looked at the question of who should intervene. So if there's going to be humanitarian intervention, if we're going to react to a crisis such as Kosovo or Libya, which international actor, if any, should actually step in? So should it be NATO? Should it be um, the African Union? Should it be an individual state? Uh, should it be United Nations peacekeeping force? So on and so forth. Now, underlying that is an interesting ethical question about which values should we regard as important when we're looking to decide which interveners we should prefer. So should we really focus on the ones that are going to be effective? Or should we be concerned much more about the ones that might intervene um, with the support of the population they're trying to interfere in? Or should we be much more concerned about um, UN Security Council authorization so they've got proper legal authorization? Um, that's the first project, so examining the question of who should intervene. Um, Second project is on private ministry companies. I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a minute. One I'm currently working on is the question of the alternatives to war. So 
according to some accounts, war is actually in decline. So although we get huge media reports all the time about the fact that the world is, in, the world is very violent, some of the demographic data seems to indicate that actually we're in a much more peaceful world than we were particularly about 30, 40 years ago, but particularly since the end of the Cold War. So what's called the declinist thesis says that actually there's now a decline certainly in wars between states, but also a decline in battlefield deaths as well. Now, if this is the case, and if it's also the case that they're going to be the rising powers and the US and the UK and the West are going to lose global influence, it prompts a question, to a greater extent, we need to, the West and also more generally, we need to think about what we're going to do instead. Also, the war obviously causes a whole host of problems. So the current project I'm looking at focuses on various things that we could do instead of war and the ethical issues surrounding them. So economic sanctions, diplomatic criticism, should we arm rebel groups, what's the case for non-violence, um, international criminal prosecutions. Each of these raise very interesting ethical questions. For instance, the use of economic sanctions raises the potential problem that they could use people as a means. So they can use the suffering of the population and instrumentalizes them to try to enact policy change and uses that suffering by pressing the government to realize that its people are suffering to, to try to ramp up the pro ramp up the pressure on um, ramp up the pressure on the government and it's objected sometimes that this is wrong not simply because of the effects on the people but because it's using them in this particular way so that's this kind of third project I'm working on. I'm going to speak a bit more about the second project, which is the use of private military and security companies. So the privatisation of military force. This is often said to be one of the most significant changes in military force in the past 50, 60 years, even maybe, maybe longer. So increasingly, private military and security companies, sometimes called private military companies, sometimes called private security companies, um, PMSCs is the standard acronym. They've been increasingly hired to perform the services that were traditionally performed by the regular military. So, to put, it, to put it bluntly, virtually everything that's not combat within the UK and US, as much as they can, has been outsourced to private companies. Now, these are, in effect, mercenaries. There's a philosophical and interesting question whether they are mercenaries. In my view, they are mercenaries. Now, the interesting ethical issues surrounding what's actually wrong with using mercenaries rather than using regular soldiers. Some people think they're actually great. It's great we can use these firms. It enables states to do more because they can hire in services rather than relying on an expensive regular armed forces that they need, not simply during war, but also during peace. And they also, sometimes it's also argued this is much better in terms of individual autonomy. So the fact that the private contractors are very clearly consenting, it's not like conscription, um, or it's not like the all-volunteer force, which can often recruit on basis of more problematic um, measures. On the other hand, there's a big critique of them as well. So the critique, I think you can divide into three levels, and then I'll, then I'll finish. So the critique is, firstly, at the individual level, questions about whether these individuals have problematic motives. So are the fact that they might be motivated by money, private contractors, is this something that's really deeply morally wrong? Second concerns the problems with the employer. So is there something wrong 
with the fact that your state is employing these firms when it should be using, say, regular soldiers to do the fighting. So sometimes it's suggested that as a state, it's us, it's, it's the Brits who should be doing the fighting. We shouldn't be outsourcing it to, to foreign companies. And there's something distasteful about that. Thirdly, at the international level, there's interesting questions about what this actually means for the international system going forward. Are we moving back to a neo-medieval system where there's much a medieval system or a neo-medieval system, if you like, where there's now the private private actors are far more important in not simply the provision of force, but also even the authorization of it. And if we are, is this actually any worse? So is this might be better than the status system because it might actually lead to less violence rather than having huge states on state wars. Lovely, thank you. Um, oh, questions. Um, but before I look at the questions, um, you have been thinking about what you'd like to discuss with each other. Is, uh, do any of you here have a particular burning question you'd like to ask one of the others? Well, I, I mean, I don't guess how many, if you've got quite a few questions, yeah. well, why don't we go I've to those? Two because, questions. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, if you remember, if you want to ask a question, there will be an open question and answer session later, um, but we're, we're trying to minimise that because we have to turn the recording off. But if you'd like to ask a question, Gail is going around with the cards. Uh, you, if you ask for a card, write your question down and then hold the card up. I will then read it out. Okay, um, this question is, uh, do you take into account the propaganda and social norms placed on the civilian soldiers? I think it's civilian soldiers in this theory. Have they not been manipulated into this mindset where they justify killing other soldiers? Uh, Would you like that again? <laughs> Oh, I, I don't know if I can ask clarificatory questions. But, uh, <laughs> the, by civilian soldiers, do we mean people um, who've been conscripted into the armed forces or people who aren't members of a standing army? I'm um, not sure. It just says civilian soldiers. I, um, that's a little tricky. Um, but but the, the general question would be... Uh, uh, so I guess the, gen the, the, the important part of the question is um, are people manipulated by propaganda into thinking that it's okay for them to engage in what are in fact unjust killings but um, they might believe are justified. Um, so I think a lot of the, um, I think most just war theorists would think that you can, you can have excuses just as you can in ordinary life if you carry out wrongful acts and uh, one form of excuse could be that for example you had false information, um, it can be also that simply that you've been coerced, so it could be that you know that the killings are wrong but um, you're under significant duress and that's why you do them. Um, these kinds of excuses can um, affect how blameworthy you are for what you do, but certainly from this kind of revisionist, individualist perspective, what it, importantly it can't do is um, put you back on a level playing field with people who are engaged in justified defence. So um, in terms of rescuing this idea of moral, moral equality between combatants, irrespective of whether they're fighting for a just or an unjust war, excuses don't vindicate that thesis because... Um, somebody who's excused for wrongdoing isn't in the same moral position as somebody who's engaging in an objectively justified act of self-defense. So I might be mistaken if I, if I kill you thinking you're going to kill me, um, but if I've, I'm acting um, 
because I've been given false information, it looks like there's an important moral difference between us, that I'm making a mistake. You're not, in fact, posing any threat to me, um, and, what you, and you're not making a mistake. You're engaged in justified self-defense. So even though these things can matter for how we should treat people, when we should blame people, whether we should prosecute people, uh, what they don't do is show that um, all of the combatants are on an equal footing. Alex, can I you? just ask Helen a question? Um, or just <laughs> respond to what Helen has said. Uh, I mean, I guess that's sort of one of the big, big issues for contemporary responses to uh, war that are individualistic in nature, the whole question of propaganda, the whole question of coercion, and so on. And I guess um, when it comes to targeting those kinds of approaches, these individualistic approaches, it seems to me that they should welcome really sort of targeted killing practices where, it's, you know, where there is a very, very long process in assessing what an individual has done, how an individual relates to a threat. I mean, sort of thinking about Obama and kill lists and all that kind of um, secret, secret service work that goes into that, all the kind of CIA work that goes into that, up to the point where you really have quite a clear picture of how that person ticks and what that person is doing and how they might be involved or might not be involved in a particular threat. I mean, is this something that would be welcomed by these individualistic approaches? This sort of shift towards targeting, new targeting technologies, this shift towards targeted killings? I mean, you could have various... Sorry, oh, targeted killings. Targeted killings, Tar yeah. Oh, okay, targeted I'll just killings, clarify so, that. Yeah. I mean, it could have various virtues. I mean, I guess there's different types of targeted killings, oh, yeah, right? So um, we could have worries about sort of what seems to some people like extrajudicial killings, mm -hmm. right? Um, that might be a separate question. Um, but if you've got in mind something like um, a drone strike that's carried out after, say, several weeks of careful observation, um, where you follow a particular target who's named, and you track their activities, you know what it is that they're doing, you know who they are when you kill them, um, it seems plausible that that at least increases your chances of, of getting it right, and you, you, you try and time this attack, like, say, to minimize collateral damage. I mean, these things seem like things which would be um, attractive no matter what your theoretical background, right? Um, increasing the chances of hitting someone you actually really do want to, to kill and minimizing your chances of accidentally getting that wrong or of, of, of having um, collateral harm. Um, that, I don't know, that, that doesn't seem to pose any particular challenge to, it just seems like a good thing. I mean, there may be other problems sure. with targeted killing, but in terms of those virtues, those seem like virtues that everybody should have. I'd agree with that, and I think it's got more intuitive force if you, in the case of targeted sanctions. So no one really objects to targeted sanctions it actually people tend to think it's a great thing because you're focusing on those who are liable. And the same argument would seem to apply to targeted killings, although targeted killings come with so many other risks mm -hmm. that our intuitions are affected by those actual those risks. But the targeted sanctions is a clear mm. is, is clear case where it, those intuitions don't seem to be um, affected by the fact that you seem to be going to war. So it yeah, does I seem that's right. yeah, yeah. Okay, on to my second question. Oh, ah, yes. <laughs> okay, uh, somebody asks, uh, whatever the original intent, uh, warfare will always become a matter of utility or sentiment. What do you think? Um, I mean, I mean, if you talk to, I mean, I guess the, the implication of the question is that there is sort of a realist drive uh, within warfare, and that in the end the kind of moral norms or legal norms that are thought to uh, sort of constrain armed conflicts sort of go out the window. Uh, I guess that's sort of implied in the question, and that in the end these kinds of norms don't really regulate, regulate armed conflict. 
And I think, I mean, to some extent, this is true. Um, so, so I would agree with that. Um, on the other hand, I mean, if you do talk to governments and if you do talk to government officials, I mean, they're very worried about international law and to be seen as complying with international law. Now, that might be reassuring, <laughs> but only to a certain degree, because the question is, of course, um, which, we, which we're faced with here, um, is, of course, to what, ex uh, to what extent the burdens that are then placed on international law can be met uh, by international law. And, I mean, you know, I've done sort of some consulting work uh, with various, uh, various military, uh, military bodies. And it seems to me that there is no one really who says, oh, we don't care about the, the law at all. I mean, everyone's very keen um, to be seen as acting legally. But, of course, there are huge debates about the interpretation of the law. Uh, which go on. So there is really this question whether the law uh, can sort of withstand this or can shoulder this burden of effectively constraining the use of armed force. Shall I, I go on? Yeah. So I, I'm also sceptical of the realist line. So I think that states and other actors engage in humanitarian intervention in particular, not simply out what they see to be their self-interest. That's always going to be one consideration, but increase, perhaps, in, perhaps increasingly, they actually adopt a moralised account of what their foreign policy is. Now, that moralised account might not always be actually a, an, an objectively moral account according to a plausible conception of morality, but they still do see it in moral terms. So the obvious, the obvious example is the neocons. So the realists were very, very critical of the neocons in America for waging war in Iraq and Afghanistan. They said if, if the US actually was interested in its national self-interest, it wouldn't have waged those wars. Now, there are various reasons why states engage not simply in the narrow self-interest, but also in what they perceive to be their kind of broader vision. And I think one of the, one of the key reasons the individual's own motivations and their own desires to have a, to leg a legacy. Also, the self-perception of the states is wanting to be a force for good in the world and wanting to do something. And also, there can be more irrational fears as well. Um, hopefully, we won't see those over the next four, four to eight years. Uh, but that's the big worry. <laughs> I mean, just, just, just a quick remark. I mean, one issue which I sort of came across when I was working on the drone stuff is the issue of reciprocity. Um, reciprocity, in a way, can have a sort of civilizing or restraining effect. I mean, the idea is very, very simple, right? I don't torture your prisoners of war, so you're not going to torture my soldiers if, if, if you capture them. And the question is, with some of these new technologies, drone technologies, um, those sort of targeted killing practices, whether these relationships of reciprocity, which, have this, which might have this kind of constraining aspect to them, whether they are increasingly going to decline. So, I mean, it seems to me that this is partly the case with American drone strikes, right? The Americans are saying, well, we can do it to you, you can't do it to us. You will never be able to launch such a strike on the American uh, on American territory. And so there is a question whether technology and also other developments uh, lead, I guess, to greater asymmetries between different powers and thus undermine restraints built into warfare. Okay. Uh, they're coming in thick and fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this must be a question for you, James. Um, how exactly do you define a mercenary? 
And what is the difference between merely contributing to conflict through weapons development and sale? Hang on, I'm... How exactly do you define a mercenary? And what is the difference between merely contributing to conflict through weapons development and sale? Sales. Okay, so that's, that's a, a great question. It's notoriously difficult to define what a mercenary actually is. So this mm -hmm. is something that the, uh, the international laws on the mercenary and the mercenary convention have really struggled with. Um, in the book, I try to provide a, a clear, if not fully satisfactory answer, which is I speak about not mercenaries, but mercenary organisations. One of the issues about speaking about individual mercenaries is that regular soldiers can moonlight sometimes as mercenaries, and so they would have a dual role. I think it's more helpful to speak about mercenary organisations and private military and security companies. And as I said, the difference between those two isn't that great. What are they? Well, I think they're for-profit, at least primarily, so they're firms that are out there to, to make a profit. Secondly, I think they're separate organisations to the regular military, so they're not part of the government. I think that helps to provide a clear distinction. And thirdly, is that I think they're international or have an international focus. So one of the difficult lines is to draw a distinction between private military security companies and domestic security companies. So what's the difference between G4S when they're providing... Um, domestic security, say, in, in uh, supermarkets or um, to banks, and those that are working in Iraq and Afghanistan that are doing something very similar. Now, it can be tricky, but I think the, it's much easier just to focus on the international element to give that clear definition. And some of the second part of that question, wasn't well, there? The second oh, part, so what that was. I finally worked out what the... It, so it's... Um, what is the difference between merely contributing to conflict through weapons development and sales, I assume, as opposed to fighting, engaging in warfare? Yeah. I mean, that's always been a very difficult question um, for just war theory, especially because, um, um, I mean, especially because people who contribute to armed conflicts in this way might be civilians. I think, I mean, if we look at sort of military contributors, as it were, that is weapons technicians, for example, who work in the military, who, for example, put a missile or, um, on an Apache helicopter, something like that. I mean, I think there would be very, very little disagreement uh, about those people being legitimate targets in warfare. You know, they're working within the military, they have a specific expertise uh, that they're using. Sure, they might not be sitting there pulling the trigger, uh, but they're, you know, they're putting the missile onto the Apache or on the drone or whatever. So a strike on a, on a military technician I don't think would be seen really as uh, something that would either contravene just war theory or contravene international law. Of course, I mean, the case of civilians who work in these kinds of roles is trickier. And one proposal, a very famous proposal from the American philosopher Michael Walzer in his book Just and Unjust Wars is to recognize that on the one hand they're contributing to the war effort, on the other hand they are civilians. So on the one hand this means that they are, uh, that it's permissible to target them, for example, but that the restrictions on the targeting of these individuals in their civilian capacity are greater than in the case of the soldier who's on the front line uh, pulling the trigger. So I guess the message would be don't participate in weapons research if you <laughs> want to live a long and happy life. I mean, sorry, but it, the, the sort of the underlying problem here is is basically that um, it's 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 hard if you want to have something like a principle of non-combatant immunity to come up with an account of 
the kind of causal contributions you can make that don't get you on the hook as a legitimate target. Um, and it's very difficult because the flip side is that people do want to have all combatants on the hook as legitimate targets, traditionally. So you have this worry that um, you, you can't just say only people who are actually doing the killing are legitimate targets, because of course the vast majority of your armed forces don't do any killing, right? You've got lots of people who just operate behind the front lines. And once you grant that and you want to say, oh, but all of those people are still legitimate targets, even if they're just you know, logistics or they're doing training or they're intelligence or whatever, um, once you allow that very broad range of, of causal contributions to the war effort to count as the sorts of contributions that are, are the kind that can make you a legitimate target, um, then it gets very hard to draw any distinction between those contributions and the kinds of contributions that civilians make. And that probably partly explains why, historically, there has just been this kind of group membership approach where it's simply a question of are you a member of the armed forces or not. The worry is that there's simply nothing terribly morally important under, underpinning that distinction. If we try and find, this, there's always been this fairly elusive criterion that might tell us why there's some significant moral difference between being the person who drives the weapons to the front line compared to being the person who designed the weapon in a university lab um, and why one might be a legitimate target and one wouldn't. Um, and I think that um, we can see why you have this kind of group membership rule because otherwise it's just very... Um, kind of bleeds out. Um, but morally speaking, I think that's really a, an important challenge, is to explain why it might be okay to kill this person but not that person, given that they are making these causal contributions. Okay. Um, is it ethically better to support indigenous groups involved in conflict rather than sending in external forces? So Syria is an interesting example, this person says. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, sort of, that's my project um, yeah. at the moment. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm partly again. I guess it goes back um, to the uh, last question that we had about causal contributions. Of course, uh, you might sort of say, I mean, uh, put this in, I mean, there's kind of a practical question. And the practical question is what works. Uh, you know, who knows the area best, who can operate within a particular vicinity and so on, would outsiders necessarily be well placed to actually achieve particular military objectives? Or should this be better done by a domestic actor? And of course, I mean, you know, the jury is out. It's, co it's a contingent point. It depends um, on the situation, whether it's better or not. But of course, again, I mean, there is a kind of causal question because you could intervene yourself in a particular in a particular conflict, or you could support someone else to do it, uh, or someone else to do the fighting. But still, I mean, you're causally contributing to the use of force within a particular scenario. And I think there's sort of partly a danger, I think, by sort of Western governments, you know, who are not particularly keen to send in their soldiers themselves to just stand back and say, well, we're just sort of supporting the indigenous movements here. We're not getting our hands dirty, but still there is a kind of causal connection. I mean, you're giving people guns and so on and so forth to pursue um, a, particular, a particular conflict. So, I mean, politically speaking, I would be very sort of careful about this tragedy of denying involvement yet, mm. you know, giving sort of loads of weapons to mm. indigenous groups. Yeah. Yes, I think there's a kind of idea that this is a the safe middle ground yeah. somehow um, between intervention and, and looking like you're you're either sanctioning or, or doing nothing. Okay. Um, but I agree absolutely. I think that's really a mistake. Um, I think that 
uh, if you're contributing to killing, then the questions that arise are pretty much the same, whether you're going and doing it yourself or whether you're sending weapons or, or finance for it to be done by other people. Uh, and this is not, I mean, by the way, I mean, Syria was being mentioned here, but it's, of course, uh, not, um, not, not a new problem. I mean, 1991, the first Gulf War, of course, the Germans, no, no, we don't really want to go to war. The Germans don't want to go to war nowadays anymore, you know, don't want to go to war. So what does Chancellor Kohl do? He opens the checkbook. And he starts to pay, you know, at the time, uh, the Americans. And of course, I mean, there's a kind of causal contribution there, but it seems to be denied uh, by politicians quite quickly and quite easily. But nevertheless, philosophically, it's relevant. Mm. And morally, it seems to me it's relevant. Mm. I, mean, so I mean, in one way, it's a little bit of a false dichotomy, I think, because the, the question asks whether it's better to su support mm. kind of um, domestic rebel groups or to send in external forces. But of course, all that external forces really can do is, is support... Um, the, the, the domestic groups, right? It's not like you want to send in your forces to go and take over, right? Um, so the thought is, all you can do is send them in to offer on-the-ground support, right? You have to pick somebody who you're going to try and ease into power. I mean, you don't want to create power vacuum. I mean, I wonder about so-called humanitarian occupations, right? If, if we I think mean, we about internationalized territories, where you yeah. bring a particular group to power, or probably not, whether you are, uh, where you are um, exerting power over a particular um, um, uh, so territory paternalistically. Um, so I guess I, I guess there is a question about intervention, right? How far it should go? Whether it should consist in bringing a particular group to power, or whether it should actually consist in assuming particular functions of government to stabilize a particular territory. I mean, you may just be trying to redress the balance as well, of course, right? So one could, thought yeah. about sending assistance is that you want to try and force parties to the negotiating table yes. um, by levelling out um, so that no side has a clear path to victory. Yeah. Um, so that could be one way, I guess, of saying that you're not really picking a side as a winner, you're not playing the kingmaker, no. um, but you are trying to sort of exert influence in ways which allows the resolving of differences internally. But in a way, it brings us back to a crucial question. I think even all the technology stuff, I mean, I talked a little bit about drones and remote-controlled weapons, it uh, doesn't really distract from that. And the crucial question still is in our conflict, who controls a particular territory? Mm. It's a very old question, it's a very simple question, but in many ways, that's what it boils down to. I agree with all of that. I mean, I, I do think there are a couple of reasons that you might think, when you're comparing arming rebels to direct military interventions, that arming rebels seems favourable. And the first is the fact that you're not going to be putting your own soldiers' lives on the line. So if you think that we've got special obligations to our own soldiers rather than to those in other countries, you might think that this is a clear reason in favour of them. And the second is related to that, is that if we think that the rest, rebels are much more likely to clearly consent to be fighting in those wars, the, that might give you a reason of individual autonomy to prefer it. But then there's actually much more, many pragmatic worries, one of which is what's called the agent, principal agent problem. So it's very difficult for when you're supplying weapons to be in control of where those weapons are actually going to end up and also to ensure that the rebel groups are actually going to do what you want them to do. And it seems easier, although not completely, it seems easier when it's your own military to be able to be in control of those sorts of things. So it is very tricky, I think, philosophically and practically to actually provide a really clear line on that question. Um. I can tell you now that I'm not going to get through all these <laughs> questions. Um, in fact, it's look, is there anyone who's burning to ask a question? Because um, when I say burning to ask a question, I mean themselves ask it. Um, because otherwise, I'm just going to say, we'll deal with these, and we won't open the question to the floor. So if you have a question, 
do ask for a card and I'll do my very best to get in as many as I can. Um, is there an incentive problem with the private providers of military force? Might the profit motive lead to greater enthusiasm for aggression? Uh, in short, yes. So that's one of the, uh, <laughs> so that's one of the worries that I have. Um, I think sometimes that can be over-exaggerated because it's still, you've still got to have an employer that actually someone, the state typically wants to actually provide those services. The bigger worry is that sometimes the private actor who's providing the military force will um, continue, not, has got an incentive to not fully address the situation. So if they're providing security, it's not to fully provide brilliant security and make make it very peaceful because they want to continue to get a contract and we saw this happen in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. But of course this is just replicated at the level of say companies who make arms, right? I mean they all have a vested interest in there being continuation <laughs> yeah. of violence. So yeah. it's, not a, it's not a new problem. No. Okay, um, aren't our intuitions uh, with respect to sanctions and targeted killings simply wrong? Um, there are a few examples of successful um, regime changes, and despite more than a decade of targeted killings, the conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq continue. Uh, leaders are apparently easy to replace. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think I would agree with that. Um, and this is, I mean, I guess why I'm skeptical about some of these new weapons technologies and the claims that are being made about them that they might lead to more sort of humane. Warfare. I mean, I would, I would 100% um, agree with that, um, really. I mean, with regards to the targeted killings, I mean, you could actually sort of say that the opposite is the case. Oh, with the targeted killings, I mean, you could say that it really, um, that it really raises very interesting questions for philosophy. Because, of course, I mean, philosophically, I can have all sorts of conditions that need to be fulfilled before a targeted killing becomes permissible. You know, the person needs to be fully culpable for the threat. You know, there needs to be a threat, blah, blah, blah. I can have loads and loads of conditions. And, of course, I mean, if I just look at it philosophically, it might look very attractive, you know, to have these targeted killings. But whether these kinds of things will actually also be met in practice, that's, of course, a very, very different question. So we have a very, very um, interesting issue, really, as to how philosophy, how moral reasoning about warfare relates to the actual practice of armed conflict. And a lot of things that might look nice, morally speaking, might not really be very nice in practice at all. And targeted killings might be amongst those, I guess. I, I mean, I fully agree with that, and so I think it does help to really draw that distinction between the ideal and the practical and the non-ideal, if you like. Ideally, I think targeted killings are fine, but there are lots of really non-ideal practical problems with them. Um, targeted sanctions, though, I think work both at the ideal and the non-ideal level. So I think targeted sanctions regimes, although they do have some problems, are far fewer. So there's far less collateral damage. There's far... The risks um, generally are are smaller because of the sanctions and the, 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 the targeted sanctions regimes have tended to be <coughs> to some degree effective. That's what the empirical literature shows. I don't know about targeted killings, but I worry much more about those. Okay, um, is there, in your opinion, still a place for nuclear weapons? Um, are they a force <laughs> of good, deterrence, <laughs> or evil, destruction? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I mean, Christ. Um, <laughs> You're laughing because this is such a big question. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm laughing out of fear because I'm worried about who's got the nuclear weapons now. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I think, well, I think this shows us that, the, I mean, correct, you know, as, as if we needed more evidence that nuclear weapons are probably a bad idea. Um, you know, look at now who's going to have nuclear weapons codes. I mean, um, it seems pretty obvious that this is a bad idea. Uh, I mean, the, the, you know, there, there are, I'm not terribly familiar with these arguments about sort of the idea that somehow they've managed to maintain, maintain peace because this is sort of lurking threat that people might use nuclear weapons. I mean, it's hard to imagine. I mean, you know, as a, as a philosopher, I think a lot about ideal circumstances. Even I struggle to imagine circumstances under which you might want to use a nuclear weapon. And I can think of a lot of very imaginative hypothetical situations with <laughs> ticking time bombs <laughs> and cats and things. And, yeah, um, but even I really um, struggle to imagine when it might be a good idea to drop a nuclear bomb on someone. So I think very bad idea and Donald Trump Makes mm. them a worse idea. <laughs> yeah, I should probably say that my wife uh, works on nuclear weapons issues, um, mm. and um, so I mean, we had a lot of conversations um, about that. I guess I mean one way to sort of deal with the nuclear weapons issue, firstly, is to I mean I don't think they're going to go away anytime soon, but is to distinguish between the military value on the one hand and the political value on the other hand. And it seems to me, I mean, one way forward is really to de-emphasize their military value and to start to emphasize their political value. And the political value is largely symbolic, namely that you're one of the big bullies at the table. I mean, I hope no one is going to be stupid, to, so stupid as to use nuclear weapons, but still they confer great power status. So militarily, mil nuclear weapons might actually not be such a big, um, a, a big project, uh, a, big, a big problem. On the other hand, um, uh, you know, there are questions about proliferation of nuclear weapons, and I think mm -hmm. one of the challenges arising from, uh, you know, a Trump presidency might be that South Korea and Japan will seek nuclear weapons uh, because um, they, might, they might think that America will not be serious about defending them against Chinese expansion mm -hmm. in the Asia-Pacific um, region. So I think, unfortunately, nuclear weapons, whether they are seen as a military asset or more as a political symbolic asset, are unfortunately here to stay. And that doesn't change that they're completely immoral, right? And that there isn't really any good moral argument one could make uh, for such a weapon. But unfortunately, they're going to be here and they're going to be staying. Um, should it matter morally, in cases of targeted killings, whether the person targeted is a citizen of the country doing the targeting? There have been reports that the SAS have been ordered to capture or kill British citizens fighting for ISIS in Iraq, and there was a significant controversy over Obama ordering drone strikes against American citizens abroad. Yeah. I mean, that was, of course, the situation last summer in 2015 when the RAF um, used a drone strike against a British jihadi who had gone to Syria uh, to fight, and there have been various inquiries into this uh, from the House. Um, a House of Commons, including the old parliamentary group um, on drones. And it seems to me that legally there is a lot of kind of argumentation there, and legally this is a big problem, but I do not think it is morally really um, a big problem. It depends on the kind of intelligence, it depends on what the person does, it depends on how such a person is related to a particular threat. It does not depend on what passport that person I mean, has. I think what's underlying this is basically a thought of, um, is the person who is killed wrong because they weren't captured and prosecuted? Yeah. Um, and let's assume that this is a person who's doing things that make, make it, say, proportionate to kill them. And then we'd have the question of, do they have a right that other people's lives are endangered 
um, say that you actually send in. So you really want to stop this person. You need, you, you need to stop this person from doing what they're doing. Does that person have a right that um, the lives of, say, soldiers are risked in order to go and capture them and put them on trial? I think the answer to that question is no. Um, if, you, if you could harmlessly you know, obtain this person and prosecute them, then I'm sure lots of people think, yeah, that's preferable. Um, but I don't think that those people have, have a claim that other people's lives be endangered so that they can be given a fair trial. No. I, I fully agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, to what extent do you consider the idea of uh, distanciation, distancing, I, th I think, of actors from the consequences of the use of or deployment of weapons from the knowledge of what one is doing? Uh, technology enables the removal from the killing ground with robots or, or, to, or, uh, or to autonomous weapons. Uh, do we have the will to address questions of power and the psychological and indeed the physical consequences of using weapons? So one interesting issue is actually PTSD is being found to be even more significant for drone operators mm. because... Um, post-traumatic stress. Post, yeah, post-traumatic stress disorder because they are not separate from their home environment. So they go home, they go and see their families and then they go back and work and in the workplace they are killing people essentially, just like in an office. So whereas in the regular, when they're actually deployed in the field, they go and have a week in Cyprus on the way back, cool off, and the thought is that then they're actually back in a completely different environment at home. So there's an actual issue going almost the other way, that the psychological issues are even worse for the operators, for those using force for the... Yeah. I mean, I would be more worried here, um, to be honest, about autonomous weapons, because I mean, I guess the idea of machine autonomy entails that the operator is uh, distanced from the actual deployment of the machine and from the actual, well, I mean, does the machine act from the doings um, of the machine? Because, I mean, the idea of autonomy means that a machine is pre-programmed and once it has been set on its course, once it has been pre-programmed, it can carry out very complex doings, very complex tasks. Uh, if you want, without involvement of the operator. So I think, you know, if machine autonomy really is going to be as big as a lot of people think um, it might be, then this issue of distancing uh, would be a much uh, bigger problem than it currently is with drone pilots. So this is an issue to watch, I think, increasingly. Um, how do the obscure lines of authority and accountability of states increase mm. when private contractors are involved in targeted killings using drones? <laughs> There's quite a lot going on there. Can you say that one again? How do the obscure lines of authority and accountability uh, in of states increase, increase. Right, okay. when private contractors are involved in the targeted killings? If anything, they decrease, surely, because the lines of authority become blurred. So one of the real objections... I suppose it might be the... Uh, uh, how does the obscurity... Obscurity, of authority right, okay, increase. okay, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, and I think, that's, I think that's clearly the case. So one of the, one of the reasons why there has been the privatisation of military mm. force is partly for this, is to provide governments with a ways of doing things that are more outside of public vision. So we don't know, for instance, that... There was a huge surge in Iraq, 100,000 contractors, a big increase. It wasn't 
wasn't publicly aware, and it wasn't known in academia until about three or four years afterwards. It wasn't until people really were able to get the numbers that the DOD, the Department of Defense, had been employing these contractors. So the worry is that actually, because we don't know much about the firms, because of the secretive nature of the contracting process, lines of accountability are only going to blur and things are going to get much more obscure. And I'm afraid this is going to have to be our final question, although I've, I've still got lots of questions <laughs> left. Um, but I hope you're going to join us in the bar afterwards. Sure, yeah. So if anyone's still got a burning question, uh, you might come and engage our speakers in discussion when they've got a glass of wine in front of them. When That, that might encourage them to speak more. <laughs> um, the definition of a terrorism uh, specifically excludes nation states, should it? No. Well, some do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, there's no single definition of terrorism. Um, there might be um, some in legal doctrines, um, which do exclude states. Um, I don't think we should take that to mean that states can't be terrorists. I mean, there's so philosophers tend to distinguish between two types of terrorism. So there's a distinct form of terrorism called state terror, which is different in character to what we normally think of as terrorism. So if you have a a terror state, then it's normally using force in order to, to maintain the status quo to oppress its people, whereas what we tend to think of as terrorism is normally set up at, at upsetting the status quo, at changing the political regime. Um, so we can definitely distinguish between state terror and terrorism, um, but certainly it's, it seems um, possible for states to engage in, in terrorist activities. I mean, certainly one way of doing so is, is to sponsor terrorist groups, which many states do. So, um, but conceptually, that doesn't seem problematic. There may be reasons why certain legal conventions um, don't include um, uh, states as capable of carrying out terrorist acts, but I don't know that morally we should take that terribly seriously. Well, it would be historically incorrect um, as well to exclude states uh, from the definition of terrorism, because mm. historically, of course, I mean, the, the word terrorism, um, you know, does emerge during the French Revolution, and it's very much associated uh, with the post-revolutionary environment in France, with the actions of the French state um, at the time. So, I mean, historically, you know, as well as philosophically, I think, there is no reason to just assign the identity of terrorists to particular sub-state actors. I would agree with that, and I would just highlight that there's two separate meanings of terrorism or terrorists. So there's terrorist as the particular group, and we tend to use that in common parlance, meaning non-state acts, but there's also terrorists in terms of referring to a particular means. And it seems very clear that the means can be terrorist by states, and that is in striking fear with indiscriminate attack for political purposes. It seems that, terrorists, that, seems that states can very clearly engage in that. Well, on that note, I'm afraid <laughs> it's been very short and sweet. I'm very glad you were able to come. Thank you for coming, and thank you in particular to our speakers for coming. We've really enjoyed it. Thank you.